Would you take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation? We'll consider the first six verses of chapter 3. Chapter 3, where we have Christ's words to the church in Sardis. There were seven churches of Asia, and now we come to the fifth church, the church of Sardis. And it could be said of this church in Sardis that they were dead. It says that in verse 1. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And it could be said that they were dead because they weren't growing. And when I say they weren't growing, I'm not trying to say that they weren't having a numerical increase in their Sunday morning service attendance. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying according to this passage that they were not having an increase in their works. Their works were inadequate. You see, when we're saved, we are transformed in such a way that we go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And thereafter, every day of our lives proves that we're spiritually alive. And we do what spiritually alive people do, good works, which as Ephesians 2 tells us, God has prepared those works beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what Christians do. Now, if we set aside what the Scriptures actually say, if we are unscriptural and instead of allowing the text of Scripture to to really keep us in to what he's trying to say, what God's trying to say to us, if we just think of whatever comes to mind or what may be popular, if we think about a pretext or a system we have or some kind of cultural norm, we may hear the words that Sardis was dead and just think, huh, a dead church. Well, a dead church to me is probably a church that's not plugged in. It's a church that's not rocking, it's not smoking. It's a church that sings hymns. That's a dead church. We talked about that last week and the fact that, you know, hymns have been sung with for congregational worship for about 500 years now all around the world. So does it really mean that a church is dead if they sing hymns? Well, that's been the case for 500 years. Are we really saying that the churches of Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Lloyd-Jones, those are dead churches? The point of the matter is that if we just take our preconceived notions and popular opinions and press them on the text, those notions don't often withstand thought, reflection, history, church history. What's most important for us is that we address and we interpret the passage scripturally. Try to get into the historical context of what's before us. Try to actually get into the text that is before us. Allow what this letter actually says to inform our understanding of what it means to be dead. And I'd say it's really refreshing. When you look at what the letter says, you come to understand what was wrong with them. Christ makes it very clear. Their works were inadequate. They didn't measure up to what Jesus expected of them. And that, that simplicity allows the truth of Scripture just to, to come home to us. It makes, us. it makes Scripture applicable, readily understandable. And that's what we want. We want to give, our, give ourselves to what Jesus said and what he meant by what he said. So last week we talked about a nominal church. 
That was a church that Christ challenged. Today we'll talk about an unsoiled church. Christ commended the church in Sardis. So, my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, today let's consider white garments. White garments. Let's pray. Father, as we worship you, we ask that we would do so by not hardening our hearts, but that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to be changed to what you've said and the will to carry it out in each day of our life. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I see several stores around us have introduced drive-through shopping. In other, in other words, you order something online, like your groceries. You go to the pickup area at the store, and then they bring out your groceries. At least that's what I would guess it's like, because I've never done it before. But you could imagine what it, an experience like this might be. Imagine that you're out and about. You realize that, oh, there's just something that you, you really need, but you don't have. So you quickly go online. You place an order for a toothbrush and toothpaste. You go to the store, park where you're supposed to park. They come out with a bag. And as you, as you open the bag, you look at it and say, that just doesn't seem right. Because obviously, I'm not getting a full tube of toothpaste. And then after that, you, you pull out the toothbrush and you think, well, where's the wrapper? And what's that on the brush? And immediately you call on the man, hey, come back, what, what are you doing? I, I ordered a tube of toothpaste and a, and a toothbrush. And I expect to get a complete tube of toothpaste and an unsoiled toothbrush. You see, you have an expectation if you were in that setting. And I would say that Jesus Christ has the same kinds of expectations when it comes to his churches. He expects them to have integrity. He doesn't want them to have deficiencies. He doesn't want them to have defects. He expects completeness, where nothing is lacking, nothing is inadequate. We know that because Christ chided this church in Sardis because they had inadequate works. It says in the midst of verse 2, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So a church to have integrity has to have a completeness of works. But as we'll consider today, Beyond the matter of completeness, there is the matter of purity. It's not only having what's necessary, it's also not having what stains and what tarnishes. And for the church to have integrity, it needs to have certain things and it needs to lack certain things. It needs to be without certain things. You see, when, when God saves a person when he's forgiven him of all of his sin through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, that person becomes a child of God. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, he is given spiritual life. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit indwells that person in order to direct him and his life in the imitation of Christ, where that believer is becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. 
Similarly, Christ was led by the Spirit of God all throughout his life to do the Father's will. And Christ was obedient to the Father's will even when it was very difficult, even to the point of death. He kept himself from the pollution of sins, even as the young people heard this morning, as Brother Jared reminded us of that in Matthew chapter 4 with the temptation of Jesus Christ. Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He did not sin. He had integrity. Even so, Jesus expects integrity in his church. He expects integrity of us. Now, with the opening of this letter, Christ is challenging the church, the church that had a name or the reputation of having life, but it was an empty name because they didn't have the necessary works to back up their name. But halfway through the letter, things change. Look at verse 4. And notice the first word, yet or but. This marks a contrast between most of the church in in Sardis who had a name and the few in the church who have a name. These, in verse 4, they had integrity. And what we need to notice about them is they had integrity because they kept themselves unsoiled by sin. Two simple points we'll consider this morning. First, Christ wants our church to be unspotted by sin. We know that because Christ commended the few in Sardis who kept themselves from sin. Verse 4 says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. And he describes them. People who have not soiled their garments. The point here is that their name matched the reality. But here it's described differently than in the first case. In the first case, most of the people in Sardis lacked integrity because of what they didn't have. Here, the few have integrity because of what they don't have. They've not been soiled. They're unsoiled. So Christ expects of us that we be unblemished because he recognized the few in Sardis who were unblemished, unsoiled. You see, they're... There weren't many who lived like this in the church in Sardis. It says there were few, just a few in church. Kind of reminds you of Noah and his family, who in the days of the flood, those were the only ones who took heed to God's word of judgment. The rest laughed it off and were taken by the flood. Or it might remind you of lonely lonely lot in Sodom, a righteous man in the midst of great wickedness. Or it might remind you of Daniel and his three companions in Babylon. There were only a few. It might remind you of the remnant in the people of God, Israel, that is often talked about through the prophets. Just a few. And what's striking in this case is that the few are in the context of a local church of Jesus Christ These few were unsoiled among the soiled church of Sardis. You see, it's it's one thing to be Lot in Sodom. It's another thing to be a few in a church. In a church. Certainly, we can imagine that these kinds of folks would probably have been marginalized, perhaps ostracized to some degree by the rest of the congregation because they obviously didn't fit in. They probably stuck out like a sore thumb. These people who are so careful to remain unsoiled, 
But as Christ has already spoken this word of condemnation among, uh, against most of them, he pinpoints these individuals sprinkled throughout the congregation who were unsoiled. Well, why? Well, the text says people who have not soiled their garments. That is to say they had clean clothes. But is Christ really talking about people who have a clean set of clothes on? Who have a good personal hygiene? Is that what he's really talking about? No. Their lives are their clothes. Their, their clean clothes show that they have a clean life. That's what is being indicated here. But I guess what we need to consider is, well, what is it that would soil them? The Bible gives us kind of some hints. We went to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The thing that could defile someone would be an idol. Revelation 14, the thing that would defile those would be immorality. As it says in James chapter 1, we're supposed to keep ourselves from being spotted by the world. Or as Jude 1.23 says, that we should be unsoiled by the flesh. But as we look at the text before us, it doesn't tell us what would soil them. It doesn't say idols or immorality or the flesh or the world. So we should probably just take it very generally to be they're not soiled by sin because sin soils. Sin soils. But if we think about that, Christ said that these folks are not soiled by sin. Were these kind of, some kind of superhumans? Because isn't it human to sin, except from the case of Jesus Christ? Doesn't everyone sin? Doesn't everyone break God's law? And if Jesus Christ has eyes like a flame of fire, doesn't he know about their sin? Of course he does. The reason that he could say that they were unsoiled, in short, was repentance. As the psalmist said, they must have cried, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Blot out all my transgressions, all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. You see, when, when someone repents of his sin, they are cleansed from sin. When someone repents, he turns from sin. That's not to say that someone who repents of his sin will never sin again, But they, when they repent, are going to change their mind. They're going to change their mind of what they think about sin. Change their mind of what they think about giving glory to God. And what seems to be the case here then is that there are a few in Sardis who purposefully avoid sin. But when they do fall into sin, they deal with it. They repent of it. They don't hide it, as Proverbs 28 talks about. The person who hides his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will have mercy. These are folks who are blameless, not because they've never sinned, not because they're perfect, but because they deal with their sin. They purposefully avoid it, and they profit by not hiding their sin or continuing in sin. So before we go any further Do these few unsoiled saints describe you? Or are you someone today who is soiled by sin? Because it has its grip on you. Or you might be honest enough to say, you have your grip on it. And you're having a hard time letting go of it. Are you hiding Sin? Are you continuing in sin? 
because Jesus' word for you today is, if you have an ear to hear, today is the day to repent, to change your mind. And if I personally could be a help to you in that regard, I would love to help you. Come find me. Talk to me about it. There are a few things that I'd want to do more than to help you with your relationship with the Lord. The few here in Sardis had unsoiled garments, and Christ promised them white garments. Look at verse 4. These people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. Notice the correspondence between the description of these people and the promise to these people. The purity of their garments at present reflects the purity of their garments in the future. You see, the color white here does not, is not a, a color of choice in God's mind, but it indicates integrity and purity. But the point is not so much about the, the, the robes that are worn so much as the kernel of the statement. The, the promise isn't about, well, you'll get to wear white. Instead, the promise is that the few will be with God, with Christ. They will walk with me. We sang already today, the sands of time are sinking. And in the final stanza, we sang together, the bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Is that who you prize? As we sang in, Ask Ye What Great Thing I Know, we asked ourselves the question, who is life in life to me? Christ. That's what Christ promises these. Just as Enoch walked with God years ago, so Christ promises these few in Sardis that they will walk with him, and thereby we're encouraged to have personal fellowship with God. Christ encourages us with personal fellowship with him because he promises to walk with them in white. Why? Why would he do that? The verse goes on to explain. Because they are worthy. They're worthy. The point is that God's gracious work in their good works made them worthy to walk with him. Think about that carefully. We do not earn fellowship with God but we do manifest the work of God in our lives. And this reward of walking with him in glory was appropriate given that they had an unsoiled walk before him in this life. If we want to put it in Paul's language of Colossians and Ephesians, we would say this, that we are to walk worthy of the Lord. And those who walk worthy of the Lord today are worthy to walk with him in glory. There's the truth. Who... Who is that true for? These few in Sardis. You say, well, what about the rest of the church in Sardis? The many, the majority, what about them? Those who were soiled by sin. Those whose works were inadequate. Do they get the chance to walk with Christ in white? Well, as we go on and and we move forward to verse 5, we'll see the answer is yes. The same is true for anyone here today who finds himself soiled by sin. You may walk with Christ in white. You may have that privilege and joy. If you will overcome, 
And let's see it together as we see an invitation to become, to be an overcomer if we have an ear to hear. Because Christ wants our church to overcome any lack of integrity. Christ wants our church to overcome any lack of integrity. And we know that because he gives motivation to those in Sardis to be responsive to what he said. He sets before them three promises. So as you go through verse 5, you'll notice the word will comes up three times. What he will do, what will happen in the future. He knows the future and he can promise these things. And Christ's promises here are meant to compensate faithful saints for any hardship that they may face in this life so that they remain faithful to him. What are the promises? In verse 5, it says that overcomers will be clothed in white. Verse 5 says the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. What we need to notice is there's a parallel between the first statement in verse 5 and and verse 4. There's a parallel between the few in Sardis who are unsoiled and the overcomer. The reward of being clothed in white is connected to walking through this life unsoiled. You see the connection? See the parallel? In the one case, there is a specific promise in verse 4 for the few. But it is opened wide and invited of, of any who will overcome to share in the same experience if they will walk through life unsoiled. Now, I say that because many pastors won't say that today. They come to this text, and they quickly run to a very specific doctrine that is very popular among evangelicals, especially of my generation. They will very quickly run to the doctrine of imputation. Say, with the doctrine of imputation, what is that about? They say that these overcomers are clothed in white because Christ clothes us in his righteousness. We sing the hymn 279, His Robes for Mine, which points to the truth taught to us through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 10, where it says this, I greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So as you read a commentary on this passage, many of them will refer to Isaiah and refer to an illustration of the high priest Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3 where his dirty clothes were replaced with clean clothes. The idea of imputation, it is a doctrine that is true. And in a world that thinks, I'm right with God because of all the good things I do, in a world that thinks I will earn glory by what I do, This doctrine of imputation is incredibly important because you don't earn heaven by what you do. Your righteousness comes from outside of you. It's imputed to you. That's the teaching of Scripture. That is extremely important in this world that thinks, I'm a good person and I will go to heaven. No, you won't. Your only hope is the imputation of of Christ's righteousness to your account. Now that said, what we actually have to figure out is, is Christ making the point of imputation in Revelation 3? It's true in other places. Isaiah 61, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It's true. 
Romans 5. But is it true in this text? Well, I would say it's not the focus of this text that's before us because as we go through this book of Revelation, we're going to find a lot of references to white garments. And as we go through them, we'll see that these white garments are worn by the saints who conquer, saints who uphold their testimony for Jesus Christ, even to the death. I want you to consider perhaps one of the most significant, which is Revelation 19, verse 8. And what we have here is a scriptural commentary on white garments, white robes. Revelation 19, 8. It is granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then it gives an explanation. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I believe as we study through this book, what we're going to see is there is a theme of conquering. Christ's conquest through suffering is a model for the conquest of his people, the saints. The saints are dressed in white because they conquer through maintaining purity in the midst of this wicked world. They don't give up their testimony for Christ. They persevere. They exemplify Christ's righteousness as the good works of salvation are worked out in their lives and they're set on display for others. The white robes of the saints depict their perseverance. And Christ is going to reward those who persevere. That's what he has before us. That's the first promise. Not just a few, but any and all who overcome this lack of integrity will be clothed in white. Secondly, Overcomers will have a name among the living. Verse 5, I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. Have you ever wondered what that was about or what that book looked like? This is really one of those thorny passages. But before I get into a bit of the interpretation of this passage, I want you to answer a question about what you see as if you were just reading this in your personal time with God each morning, and you read the words, the promise, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Does that sound like a good thing? Yes. Yes. That's a good thing. He is promising a good thing. He's promising life. He promises not to do something. He promises not to blot the name of an overcomer out of the book of life. Now, what's the book of life? And that's where the difficulty of the study comes in. It would be really great if we had a a nice, neat explanation of what this book of life refers to exactly. Because people have different opinions about it. Some people believe that the book of life is like a register of citizens in a city. So a city has a book in it. As a list of all the people who live in that city. When someone comes, they write their name in the book. When someone dies, their name is removed from the book because they're no longer living there. Perhaps this book is reflective of that book where names are in and names are blotted out when they are no longer living there. Or others believe that the book of life is a record of the elect people of God only. The book of life includes only those who have eternal life. So many names are not written there, never written there, whether before the foundation of the world or since. We're never there as representing the living. 
Now, depending on what you believe about the book of life and what it is and what it refers to, you're going to come across a very thorny issue. Because if the book refers to the names of the elect, what would seem to be the case is that those who are elect, who are the very chosen of God, can be blotted out of the book of life. Simply said, a Christian can lose his salvation. That's the thorny issue. Is that this passage teaching that point by way of implication? That a one who becomes a child of God can be kicked out of the family of God. Well, let's just say for sure, you can't be kicked out of God's family. You can't come to spiritual life and somehow you lose that eternal life. That's not possible. And there are a whole series of messages on that point. You see, the point is, from various scriptures, that God, who begins a good work in us, will bring it to completion. All who received eternal life will never perish, and no one can snatch them from the hand of Christ or from the hand of the Father, John 10, as we memorized a couple years ago. They are secure. That said, this passage does not encourage folks to simply rest on a prayer they prayed years ago and the doctrine of eternal security. Let me get really specific here. The idea that, repeat after me, one, two, three, you're saved, and now you're eternally secure, that idea of Christianity is deceiving. And there have been many, many, many who prayed a prayer just speaking the words, repeating the words that someone else said for them to say, and they did so because they want to please the person. There have been many who have said those words but never, ever understood what they were saying or meant it. There was no conviction of sin. Yet they're told that they're eternally secure. And what has gone on for the rest of their life is no change, is utter spiritual lethargy, and is so often the case complete spiritual deception of their own spiritual deadness. Many people think, well, if heaven is secure, I can do whatever I want. That's not true. Paul makes that incredibly clear in Romans chapter 6, where he asks the question rhetorically, shall we continue in sin? No. No. The point that is in Revelation 3, the point in that, We have the overcomer. The point is not, did you pray a prayer decades ago? The point is, has there been a change of life that proves your name is in that book of life? There's the point. Has there been a change of life? And if you're going to determine whether or not your name is there, don't think back to a prayer. Think about your life and the change that God has wrought in your life. I can apply this really practically in the matter of covenants. We make covenants. People get married. When you get married, you make a covenant. You make a vow. There's only two rules when it comes to marriage. Very simple. A man is to marry a woman. That's God's rule. That's the obvious one to, to figure out and to figure if you're doing it right. Number two, a Christian must marry a Christian. That one's a little bit harder. Because how do you know they're a Christian? Well, they say they are. 
Does that really mean they're a Christian? What you would ask an engaged couple as you go through marriage counseling, you'd ask them this. What are the marks of grace that you see in your fiancé? The basic point is, what do you see in them that shows God has changed them and given them spiritual life? Because it will be evident. Something has got to have changed. Or we can talk about church membership. As when someone joins a local church, they make a covenant to uphold the gospel with that church. So we ask a person, do you profess Christ? Yes. Do you have any evidence that he has changed your life? You should. There should be some fruit of the Spirit already being manifest in the life of even a very young believer that is responsive to the Word of God, that he chooses to forsake things that he used to do. There should be evidence. That's what is true of an overcomer. His name is among the living because he has been changed. It is obvious that God has made him spiritually alive. Lastly, overcomers will be named before the Father. Verse 5 says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So in contrast to the promise that we just heard, Christ is promising to do something. In that case, he is promising not to do something. Here he says what he will do. He will confess the name of the overcomer before his Father. And I want you to imagine that just for a second. We're all standing there before the throne of God. There is a host of saints through the ages surrounding us. The 24 elders that we read about in chapters 4 and 5 are there. The host of angels are there who cry day and night, holy, holy, holy. They are there. And then all of a sudden you hear Christ call out your name in the halls of heaven. Imagine that. That Christ will confess your name before his Father, that you belong there. When he knows everything about you, he knows everything about me, and he will name you, he will name me. Glory! Wonderful. These are promises that Christ makes to these, this church that lacked integrity. These are promises that are meant to motivate them to make up for any lack. To pull them out of spiritual deadness. To bring them to spiritual life. These are motivations to deal with our sin honestly. These are motivations for us to live apart from sin. To be like the few who are unsoiled by sin. These are reasons to live like Joseph in Egypt who did not run who ran from Potiphar's wife, who didn't give in to her. These are reasons to live like Daniel and company in Babylon, who chose not to defile themselves with the king's food. These are reasons like Jesus, who remained faithful to the end and was without sin. These are reasons for us to overcome. So as we come to the end here, from this letter to the church at Sardis, we find tests by which we can measure ourselves. Two tests. Very simple. Are you growing? Are you growing? Thereby showing signs of spiritual life. Because most in Sardis weren't. 
They didn't have the works to back up what they professed. So are you growing? Because if you have life, you'll be growing. Secondly, are you unspotted? You are purposefully avoiding sin and confessing sin when you fall into it. Because there are a few in Sardis who had that kind of integrity. Do you? Are you unspotted? And if you wonder, ah, I don't know about tests. I don't know about thinking about myself that seriously. Is it really that important? It is. The teaching of the book of Revelation in the upcoming chapters is the fact that Christ is going to take his rule in heaven and extend it throughout the earth, throughout his creation. He will come to earth. He will weed out sin. He will remove all those who, are, who oppose him. And given that truth, these churches in Asia who named him needed to make sure sin was not reigning there because Christ is coming one day to root it all out. And he is warning them here. He is giving them the opportunity to, to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to any kind of lack of integrity. He's saying, you need to deal with this now because I come to judge those who won't. So may the Spirit of God give us ears to hear what he is saying to the churches. Father, as we close this letter, we ask that you will have your way in our hearts, that you would keep us from any pushback to what you might be putting your finger on. And Father, if, if someone needs help, may they find someone around here who would help them, point them to your word, Pray with them that they might have victory, that they might overcome. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.